So we've been learning over the course of the summer about the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Today we're going to focus specifically on chapter 43, where we look about the challenges and difficulties that Jacob and Joseph both experienced. Life often presents all of us with difficult situations where we need to figure out what to do. Sometimes we're trying to choose between two good options. So it's summer, you may be planning a vacation or planned a vacation and trying to decide if you should go to the beach or to the mountains. That's a good problem to have. And in fact, I've been told that in Japan that's referred to as a happy problem. I wish more of our problems were happy problems, but unfortunately that's not often the case. The real difficulty is when we're in a situation that doesn't seem to have any good options. We use different expressions in our English language to describe this, things like being stuck between a rock and a hard place, um, having our backs against the wall, being painted into a corner. Maybe we're having difficulties with our health that don't have these easy solutions, and we're faced with suffering for the rest of our life, or trying a medical treatment that could provide some relief, but could potentially lead us even worse if it doesn't go well. Maybe we're living in difficult circumstances with no good options and trying to decide whether to just stay put or to risk everything and leave in the hope that somehow our life will be better somewhere else. Or sometimes there don't seem to be any good options and we just feel stuck. We may start asking, why is this happening to me? What can I do to fix the situation? Where is God in the midst of all of this? These are the very questions that Joseph's family found themselves confronted with. We can look at their situation, see how God was at work in their lives. But before we do that, let's spend a moment in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word that is a light to our feet and shines upon our path. I thank you for the example of Jacob's family, of Joseph, his brothers, that we can learn from. We thank you for the opportunity just to come together here. And we just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would speak to each individual here. In your name we pray. So in this story so far, we've seen the dramatic ups and downs of Joseph's life. Betrayals by his brothers, being sold into slavery in Egypt, but then met with initial success while there. But then falling out of, out of favor by being falsely accused and imprisoned but then raised to second in command of the nation and being able to provide grain to the entire region during a famine. It's hard to find few people with the ups and downs that, in their lives that Joseph has had. So as outsiders looking in, we can see, and as this is the theme of this whole series, we can see God hands moving throughout Joseph's life as he intended all of it for good. Now, as foreseen by Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, the famine is severe, and the, uh, Jacob and his sons are running out of grain to eat. But in order to go back to Egypt and get more grain, they must take Benjamin with them, as Joseph commanded. As you probably remember, as far as Jacob is concerned, uh, Joseph's dead. He has no idea that Joseph is alive. And Benjamin is the only surviving son of his favorite wife, uh, Rachel, who also died years before. Jacob says there's no way he would be willing to do anything to lose Benjamin. So at the end of chapter two, he said, my son, meaning Benjamin, shall not go down with you. 
for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So Sheol was believed to be the place of the dead until final judgment. So Jacob is essentially saying that if harm should come to Benjamin, it would kill him. So he's faced with a central dilemma. Do we stay here? Do we risk running out of grain and hope that the famine ends before we all starve to death? Now remember, we know that the famine is going to be seven years. They have no idea how long the famine is going to last. It could be a few more months. It could be many years. They have no idea. Or do I send my sons, including Benjamin, back to Egypt to buy grain and risk something happening to him, which would be so great a loss, I don't know if I can bear it. What an awful, difficult situation to be in. He really is stuck between a rock and a hard place. So how does he respond? Well, first, he tries to figure out why is this all happening? In verse 6, Jacob says to his sons, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? So why are they in this situation? Well, Jacob comes to the conclusion it's his son's fault. If they had just kept their mouths shut, they wouldn't be in this situation. Does that type of response sound familiar? When we're having problems, our automatic response is to want to know why. Why is this happening? We want this situation to make sense in some way. Somehow it feels like when we understand the situation, it somehow makes it a little bit better. We have this underlying desire to live in a world where things make sense, where events are predictable and understandable. So we typically come up with one of three different types of explanations when things go wrong. First of all, it must be my fault. The situation is the consequences of my actions and poor decisions. And you know what? A lot of the times that's probably right. We do a lot of stupid things and we reap what we sow. So oftentimes our difficulties are the result of our own actions. And if I got myself into this, I have to get myself out of it. We saw last week that Joseph's brothers carried considerable guilt and believed that God was punishing them for the way they treated Joseph. They clearly believed it was their fault. Jacob takes the second path, which is to believe that it's your fault. Things would be just fine if it weren't for you. And indeed, sometimes we do reap what others sow. We pray to pay the price for the actions of others. But at least I can feel better about myself that at least it's not my fault. And the you who is at fault may be a person, may be a group of people, might be the government. You know, sometimes it's Bill Gates' fault. It could be anybody. In fact, the desire to find someone at fault is part of what contributes to our belief in conspiracy theories. The third option is that I can't come up with an explanation. I don't know why this is happening. This is actually the most difficult answer for us. Again, because of our strong desire to believe that things happen for an understandable, clear reason. To fill in this gap, we may conclude, well, maybe I just did something wrong that I don't know about. Or 
maybe you did something wrong that I don't know about, but ultimately, someone must be to blame for the situation. So what do all of these explanations leave out? Well, there's really no room for God in any of these explanations, unless God is the you whose fault it is. The Bible is full of story after story of God's people finding themselves in difficult situations. And a unifying theme is that time and time again, it was all part of God's grand plan for humanity. Now, we often try to help other believers who are having struggles by pointing them to this fact. We say things like, remember, this is all part of God's plan. Maybe that's what we tell ourselves in these situations. Um, this statement is both incredibly true, but also sometimes incredibly unhelpful. In terms of the truth, as followers of Christ, we do indeed believe that God is ultimately in control. But knowing that does not necessarily ease the pain or anxiety of being in difficult situations. I don't think it's supposed to. But saying it's all part of God's plan to someone who's struggling can also be unhelpful because the underlying message it can accidentally communicate is that if you just had more faith, if you believed more that God is in control, if you really trusted God, you would be at peace with the situation and everything would be okay. I don't think this is what people intend to communicate but it's often what can be felt by the receiver. A statement can be true and unhelpful if it's delivered at the wrong time or in the wrong situation. So, are we the cause of our problems? Sometimes. Are other people the causes of our problems? Sometimes. Are our problems part of God's master plan for our lives? Always. Does knowing is part of God's plan mean he's going to reveal to us how it's part of his plan. Unfortunately, usually not. Does it really matter why our problems are happening? At one level, not really. No matter the reasons behind our difficulties, they are an opportunity that God is giving us to turn to him in response. So let's turn back to the story of Jacob to see what his response was. So again, at the end of chapter 42, we saw Jacob trying to deal with his fear by trying to take control of the situation. He was determined to not let Benjamin go down to Egypt. His mind was made up, and that was just the way it was going to be. We see this desire to stay in control in chapter 43. So in verse 8, Judah said, send the boy with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So Judah's essentially saying that if they go down to Egypt and Benjamin is in trouble, that he will substitute himself in Benjamin's place so Benjamin can return safely. This is an incredibly noble gesture, and it's one that David will be developing more fully in a few weeks. But while noble, Judah is offering a certain amount of certainty about the situation as if he is in control of the situation, when it was really a, a, a tremendous uncertainty. For all they know, Judah's, uh, Joseph's going to throw them all in jail, or even worse. Then in verse 11, Jacob says, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, and carry a present down to the man, 
a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. I love pistachios, so this would have worked for me, in case you ever like, need to get on my good side. But. So keep in mind that Jacob was a man of some wealth. Here he is trying to use his resources to buy favor for his sons when they go to Egypt. He's trying to regain control over the situation. When we find ourselves with no good options, when we feel out of control, we will do whatever we can to try to regain some control over the situation. Because feeling helpless is one of the most difficult emotions for us to experience. Jacob's feeling helpless here, and he's trying whatever he can to regain control. Now, to completely understand Jacob's response, we need to understand his backstory earlier in the book of Genesis. It starts with his birth in chapter 25 when he was given a name that means he takes by the heel, but it also means he cheats. Could you imagine from birth living your life with the name cheater? I don't, I, I, we didn't name either of our kids of that for, the, for a good reason, but well, he really lived up to that name. Here are just a couple of highlights, or maybe more accurately, lowlights from Jacob's life. So Jacob's father, uh, Isaac, loved his twin brother Esau more than Jacob. As the firstborn, even by seconds, Esau would be the primary heir and would get a larger inheritance called the birthright. Jacob is jealous of his brother and wants to figure out a way to get control over the situation. So he tricks Esau into giving over his birthright in exchange for a bowl of soup, of stew. Later, when Isaac is old and nearing death, he asks God for a blessing on his sons. Jacob correctly suspects that Isaac will ask for a better blessing for Esau as the favored son. And Jacob wants that blessing. So he takes advantage of the fact that his father is blind and tricks him into believing that he is Esau. So Isaac offers Jacob the blessing intended for Esau. So how low can you get tricking your blind, aged father in order to have control over the situation? So time and time again, Jacob tried to trick and bribe his way out of situations. Jacob uh, has tried to solve his problems on his own strength and abilities, and not once does he turn to God. Now fast forward again to chapter 23, and Jacob's finding himself in another situation. But this time it's a situation that he is unable to get out of with his usual means. He's truly backed into a corner and has nowhere to turn but to God. This takes us to Jacob's brief but powerful statement in verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so. As I read that and I was thinking about it, my first reaction was, this sounds like just resignation, as if he's saying, fine, go. He's just giving up. But we need to see this situation more as the culmination of years of Jacob trying to manage his problems on his own, often through not so savory means. He's finally gotten to a place where he can do nothing to control the situation. God has backed him into a corner and given him no other way out. So he then prays, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother, other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Jacob finally chose to trust God. Now keep in mind that this was still not his only option. 
God did not force Jacob to trust him. God was giving Jacob an opportunity to trust him. So at this point, the story shifts. This chapter shifts from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. Jacob's sons have traveled to Egypt to try to buy some more grain. So we're going to pick up the story and read starting from chapter 16 through to the, uh, sorry, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Here's a side note. We can see a continuation of last, from last week of the incredible guilt that they are still feel, uh, carrying and their fear of punishment. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when, when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he, they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him, uh, to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptian could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. So now it's Joseph's turn to be in a difficult situation. On the one hand, he's overjoyed to see his brothers, especially his brother Benjamin, so much so that he's unable to hold back his tears. But on the other hand, these are the same brothers who sold him into slavery. They are the cause of his years of pain in jail. So he's trying to figure out what to think of them. Is it safe to trust them? Have they changed? How should I deal with them? The problem is very different from the one that Jacob was faced with. 
Jacob was dealing with the problem of his circumstances. Joseph's problem is one of people, of relationships. Maybe relational problems are the ones that you're struggling with today, such as broken relationships with a family member, a strained marriage that's full of conflict, being hurt by someone close to you. Maybe you're the one who hurts someone else and you don't know how to regain their trust. Although our circumstances can be incredibly difficult, it's often our broken relationships that cause us the most pain. We see this in Joseph, who's feeling a lot of emotions towards his brothers and doesn't know what to do. So Joseph begins to test them in order to find out what kind of men they have become. Joseph shows them tremendous favor. He invites them to a meal at his home. He shows them hospitality by having his steward give them water, allow them to wash their feet and feed their donkeys. He reunites them with Simeon. Now you may be thinking, this sounds great. This is exactly how I would want to be treated if I was a guest in someone else's home. But remember, all they want to do is go down, get their brother, buy grain, and get out of there. They are terrified of Joseph and what Joseph can do to them. Joseph asks some questions about how they're doing and about their father. He tests them in an interesting way by seating them in order of their birthright. They're understandably amazed. It's nearly impossible that he could have put them in order by sheer chance. In fact, the odds are about one in 40 million that he could have gotten them in the right order. So how could he possibly have known? Joseph then shows favoritism towards Benjamin by giving him five times as much food as the others. I love to have this mental image of Benjamin just sitting there surrounded by food, like he's at Shady Maple out in Lancaster. Joseph's problems all began because his brothers were jealous of the favoritism their father showed to him. Last week, we saw how that favoritism now had shifted to Benjamin. So how would his brothers now react seeing Benjamin receiving favoritism from Joseph as well? Then in the last verse, it says they drank and were merry with him. The footnote in my Bible says that the language suggests that they got drunk. Perhaps Joseph was now using alcohol to get them to let down their guard to better understand what kind of men they were. So what is Joseph's conclusion after all this testing of his brothers? Well, we don't know yet. We don't get the answer here in chapter 43, but you can feel the tension just building and building. We see Joseph struggling with what to do in this difficult situation, but he's not yet done testing them. This is a familiar story for many of us. So we, a lot of us, know that ultimately Joseph and his brothers will be able to reconcile. In my opinion, the story would feel less believable if Joseph quickly just forgave them after the years of hurt that they, he, they caused him. But you'll have to come back next week to find out how it all plays out. So one of the patterns we see repeatedly in the story of Joseph is the way people are changed by God's, the way God works in their lives. Jacob changed from using cheating and bribing his way out of problems to a dependence on God. Judah changed from a man who would sell one brother into slavery out of jealousy to being willing to lay down his life for another one. Have Joseph's brothers changed? He's still trying to figure that out. God is in the business of life change. And we see that clearly in Paul's second letter 
to the Corinthians. So if you could turn there now, but hold a spot here in Genesis. So if you could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, and we're gonna start in verse 14. So Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we become in Christ, meaning to become his follower, we're made into a new person. Our life begins to change. It often doesn't change as fast as we would like, and there are ups and downs through the process. I've now been a, a Christian for half of my life. I was 25 years old when I first became a Christian, and I now, I'm now 50. I know you say there's no way you're 50, you're 40 at tops, but I really am 50 years old. Thank you, thank you for that, by the way. So I can look back at the person I was 25 years ago and see the ways in which God has transformed me and worked in my life over the last 25 years. But I can also look at the person I am now and see the unbelievable amount of work that still remains to be done. I don't know how much time I'll have this side of heaven for God to continue to transform me, but I can look forward to an eternal future with him where I will finally be perfected. In the meantime, I have the opportunity to see the problems and difficulties in my life in a different way. So when God put Jacob in a corner, he left him with no viable opportunities to fix the situation on his own. He basically had only two choices continue to try and figure this out on his own, or trust God. And fortunately, he chose to trust God. But this does not mean he did not experience fear and anxiety over the uncertainty of the situation. Just because he, sent, he agreed to send his sons back to Egypt with Benjamin does not mean he was at home relaxed with his feet up, enjoying things while he waited for their return. We have the opportunity to trust God in our difficult circumstances, but this does not mean our situations will necessarily get easier. Now we'll see in later chapters that Jacob was fortunate enough to be able to see the clear positive outcome of the situation. In the end, the reasons for their problems became clear. I find it much easier to accept pain and suffering in the world, whether for myself or for others, when I can see clear evidence of God's plan and action. But usually, if we ever see the end result, and seek the uh, end result in which we can understand how God was using a situation for good, it's typically only after a long period of time. Think of how long Jacob had to wait to find out that his son was still alive and would provide deliverance for their family. Or how long Joseph waited in prison before seeing how God would use that experience. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to wait. I want God's plan to make sense to me right now. But like I said, I'm a work in progress. And most of the time, we're never 
going to understand how God's using our difficult circumstances, at least not until we get to heaven. Maybe then we'll finally understand. I don't know. But God is inviting him to trust him now anyway. What if this situation really is my fault? We may be experiencing the consequences of our sin, or maybe we just messed up. There may be lessons God wants us to learn from the situation, but ultimately it's still an opportunity to trust God. So does that mean I should do nothing? Is that what trusting God looks like? Well, no, Jacob's sons still had to go to Egypt. The answer was not for them to sit around in Canaan and God to send DoorDash to bring food to them in Canaan. God still gives us the opportunity to be involved in the story. Uh, we still have a part to play. One of my favorite characters in this chapter is Joseph steward. In verse 18 to 23, we see Joseph's brothers going to the steward because of the money they found in their sacks the last time they came down for grain. They think that money is the reason that they've been invited to a meal, that it will be an opportunity for Joseph to attack them, steal their donkeys, and make them servants. So they bring it to the steward's attention. The steward has a very interesting response. Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. But that's kind of an odd statement because if you look back to chapter 42, when the money was put in their sacks, the steward was the one who put it there. He knows exactly how the money got in their, in their sacks. So is he just lying to them? Or maybe the money was intended to be a gift from Joseph uh, for them to go home with. Perhaps, but what I also see is the steward seeing God in action. That the steward is the one who understands that God is at work in this situation. And it is often the case that it's the other people in our lives who can see God working through us more than we can see it in our own lives. When we're in difficult situations, God may be calling us to act so he can work through us. Now, you've probably heard before that a lot of the Christian life is one of tension. And the tension here, one of the tensions here, is that we're called to follow God's lead and to act. However, the temptation can be to forget about him if we see our actions solve the problem and to say, well, we fixed the problem on our own and forget about God. It took years of difficult situations and being put in a corner for Jacob to finally start trusting God. Joseph has faced years of suffering as a result of his brother's actions. Will he now depend on God as he figures out what to do? But as I said, we're going to have to wait until next week to, see, to find out. How about us? Maybe you're sitting here today feeling like God has put you in a difficult situation, that you feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. Maybe you're desperately trying to stay control of your situation, or at least to convince yourself that you're in control. Maybe you're trying to figure out, how did I get in this mess in the first place? I need to understand the situation. I know that in my daily life, I frequently try to plan ahead and think about what's coming up so I can prepare myself. And that gives me a sense of control over even simple situations. But deep down, I know I'm fooling myself. There's very little that I really have control over that any of us 
have control over in our lives. So what are we to do? Well, we can return again to the, the verses in 2 Corinthians that we were looking at a moment ago. So please take a look at those again. So we're going to pick up in verse 17 where we left off. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So a key word in these verses is, of course, reconciliation, a word we hear a lot, which means to restore a relationship. As new creations, Paul is calling us to two types of reconciliation. First, like Jacob, we need to be reconciled vertically with God, and the sacrificial death of Jesus makes this possible. Now, of course, it's easier to trust someone with whom we have a relationship. God is inviting us to a renewed relationship with him that can produce that trust. Also, like Jacob, this relationship is a work in progress. While we are reconciled to God the moment we place our faith in Jesus, it is then a gradual process of building that relationship as we continue to be transformed and changed into his image. Today, maybe you need to commit or recommit to building that relationship with God. Second, in Joseph, we see a horizontal reconciliation as he seeks to understand his brother's hearts. In this chapter, we are seeing the process in action, but has not yet reached its fulfillment. So too, in our relationships with others, reconciliation takes time. Maybe you need to take steps today to store, restore relationships with other people in your life. When we're put in a corner, whether in our circumstances or in our relationships, it's important to remember that God's first priority is not calling us to a solution to our problem, but to a relationship. And I'm going to say that again. It, God's first priority is to call us not to a solution, but to a relationship. Our difficulties are an opportunity to trust him, to build that relationship with him, to be reconciled with him and with each other. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we are thankful that you are in the business of reconciliation. We thank you that as we place our faith in you, that we are reconciled to you, that that broken relationship is healed. But we know that's just the beginning of our journey with you. We thank you that we are changed and we continue to be changed each and every day. We pray that for patience with that process, which does not go as long as we would like, but help us, Lord, to come away with a renewed desire to build that relationship with you, 
and to re restore our broken relationships with others. Amen.